Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Diara, Miles, and Kai talking about the news that you don't know from the past week. The news with regard to race, justice, and equity that went underreported, but you should know. Then I sit down with an award-winning national security reporter for Vice. He has a new podcast called American Terror, where he speaks to a range of people, informants, whistleblowers, experts, extremists, and reports on the rise of far-right domestic terrorism. I learned a lot. You'll learn a lot, too. Here we go. My advice for this week is to have grace for people. Everybody's going through a lot. People need space and processing time. I've grown a lot in these past couple months. A lot more patient, a lot more graceful. Sending that to you. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. Thank you for joining us again. I am Dr. Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Ballinger. I am Miles E. Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Feral Rapture. Kaya Henderson on Twitter, at Henderson Kaya. And this is Dre at DIY on Twitter. Hmm. just want to take a deep breath before we talk about Tyree Nichols. May he rest in peace. We know that the video of his lynching came out on Friday evening. I was actually in Minneapolis with my family, with my mom. And my aunt and I started to watch the video and my mom, who practices wellness, particularly wellness for Black bodies, made us stop. And she talked about how our brains actually aren't meant to process traumas like that. And so the repeated imagery that we have from the last, I mean, for me, just in my lifetime, starting with Rodney King and now, you know, 30 years later to seeing so many videos later. I will say that the reason I was in Minneapolis was to take 16 family members to see Robert Glasper, my favorite jazz musician. And I'm actually glad that we went to see Robert that evening because obviously Robert had also been so deeply affected. And so the music was so beautifully and profoundly reflective of Black brilliance, Black sorrow, humanity, in ways that I think was healing in some ways. I think still, I'll speak for my family, still much in a point of process. And and my family's dealt with, I'm sure like many Black families, a fair amount of, of police violence and police killings in our own family. So... You know, this is all still sitting with me. And it's so wild how you just, you think you're unaffected and you think you can digest these types of things or at least understand the trauma in digesting them. But, you know, my brother called my mom very early Saturday morning and my mom and I were panicked because he called so early. So we're just, what's going on? What's going on? And that is because of this world that we live in and what we are seeing and what we know are happening to Black bodies. So I don't, you know, I I definitely don't have anything instructive to say other than how I was feeling and still am feeling about what happened and what we had to see of it. I don't know, y'all. It's so, it continues to be outrageous 
what really struck me about this is this young man was a hundred yards away from his house. And to think about being so close to home and having done literally nothing just re-escalates our fear of being pulled over by the police. I feel like here we talk all the time about how traffic stops precipitate all of the violence, it seems, or most of the violence in police brutality cases. And like, this shouldn't happen is the biggest understatement of the world. But like, as you said, Diara, I just can't understand every other country in the world has decided that human lives are more important than guns, gun rights, blah, blah, whatever, whatever. And it doesn't matter. Nothing that happens. We are just, we're like, whatever, as you'll learn from my news a little later on. It just is, I don't know. I, I, I watched that mama on her interview with Don Lemon and she made me so proud because she was somehow or another able to make her pain feel real and at the same time sort of recognize the larger issues. And why do we have to do that? Like, why do Black mothers have to share their pain with the world? Why do we have to contextualize everything? Why why are they killing our children? Um, I don't have nothing to say, y'all. I'm sorry. I think the thing that's been coming back to me all weekend is that we've had so many opportunities to get it right. I think that all of these moments have, they just seemingly happen in vain. And I think, I didn't watch the film, but of course I know about the story of Emmett Till and his mother and like all these different like situations. And I think, well, if something shifted in the course of history, something shifted because of this tragedy, then we can look at it differently. But we have had so many opportunities just in the last five years, just since the pandemic started, we had so many opportunities to to change. And I'm just tired, which is quite an understatement, of Black people, Black minds, Black spirits, Black lives being the martyr for the opportunity on top of opportunity after opportunity. Maybe this will be disgusting enough. Maybe this will go viral enough. Maybe this one will be bloody enough. Maybe this one will be racist enough to shift what happens. And the course of America getting right is happening on Black people's backs. Wild is an understatement. The thing that is really heartbreaking, Kaya, when I think about his mom is that he was 80 feet away from the house. Mm -hmm. So when you think about him calling out to her, it is not only an emotional cry, but it is a logistical cry, right? It's a like, you actually might hear me, right? You might hear me from the kitchen, the bedroom, the living room. It's a like, come save my life cry, please help me. Like not just an emotional. And that is just so heartbreaking. And the thing that, you know, really stunned me is that when you read the articles, it was like three minutes, right? That's what the article said. The articles are like, they beat him for three minutes. You watch the video, you're like, they beat that man for 30 minutes. 30 minutes. They propped him up, beat him, handcuffed him, kicked him on the ground, sat his body up. EMTs waited 15 minutes before they rendered aid. 
other officers came and left and saw it. 80 feet away from that, like what a wild, wild, you know, his father, his stepfather got on the news and one of the reporters was like, he was a couple blocks away from home. And the dad goes, no, he was houses away from home, houses. Mm-hmm. And you are reminding, Kai, you talked about this, you know, traffic stops do precipitate so, so much of the violence. And what's so wild about this case is that there was no traffic violation. If we remember the initial reports, mm-hmm. it was reckless driving. And the police department then came out and had to say, we have no proof that there was anything to substantiate I mean, what a wild, wild encounter. So that's that. You know, when I think about Memphis, obviously at Kimmy Zero, we do police work. And we wrote a law in 2021 that did uh, require the duty to intervene. Clearly, they did not uphold that law in this case. But that law is what allowed those officers to get fired uh, so quickly. And it's not enough, right? Like, I hope the Tennessee legislature, like, does something in this moment. The Memphis City Council can restrict officer use of force right now. Over 35, 40 percent of the police de- of the city's budget goes to the police department already. And then all the other agencies have to just deal with the rest of the money. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So I agree with you, Miles. You're like, this question of, like, what is enough? Like, how much pain is enough? Which death will be the thing to spark the, like... This feels all too familiar, and I am hopeful that um, this death is not in vain. Ray, talk for a minute about the indemnification issue, because I think one of the things that was also shocking to me about this case is how quickly the police department threw their own officers under the bus, right? And usually you see the police department protecting its officers, taking a long time to investigate, you know, making excuses, whatever, whatever. But, honey, that black lady police chief went on and was like, this is egregious. I don't see any reason why he should have been stopped. The violence was egregious. And these officers are going down. Like, And the police department is nowhere on their side. And, Dere, you explained something to me about indemnification in Memphis that is different than other places. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so indemnification is the idea that if you do something at work, then your employer is liable for you. So if a McDonald's employee throws hot coffee on somebody, you can sue the employee. But when you're suing the employee, you're really suing McDonald's. That is That idea is familiar to people. That process is called indemnification. What is unique about Memphis among the big cities in the country is that for the last 30 years, they have not accepted any liability for officers engaged in wrongdoing in the civil process. So in Memphis, when an officer is engaged in wrongdoing and you go sue that officer, you are actually suing the officer alone. And the bad thing about that is that the officer ain't got no money. So when you sue for damages, that officer just files for bankruptcy and you are screwed. So in Memphis, you actually have to sue the city proper. Like you have to sue the city and show like a pattern of misconduct or sue the city and show that they sort of willfully or whatever made the misconduct bad, but it's a much more intense legal battle to sue the city outright, and they know it. And the other thing that it does, why this is really bad, is that lawyers are slow to sue because they know the legal battle for the city is really high, and you can't sue the officers. You can't, like, sue the officers and default sue the city. So Memphis has some unique things, uh, but all things that are fixable in this moment. Like, they can undo that right now. They can change the policy right now. The Tennessee legislature can pass a law right now. Like all these things can happen right now. They don't need to take forever. I think your thing was good in terms of their policy. It was active, right? There are some policy things that we can do to move this forward. What else? How else do you want to wrap it up? 
I'm, you know, giving you my news. I do want to honor, I think the best way to honor it is just by acknowledging it, is that I am about to talk about something that is not nearly as important as what we just discussed. And I think that part of being Black is holding horrors and comedies and gossip and darkness and light at the same time. How we do our news here is we we pick our news, we give it to each other, and we all try to pick it from where our specialties are, and mine is entertainment and culture. So I just want to go on the ride with y'all that this is a hard transition, and this is not nearly as important as what we just discussed. With saying that, I'm talking about Good Morning America, y'all. I don't know if you all talked about Good Morning America without um, while I wasn't there, because I think the news broke and we might have been on break, or I think I might have missed that episode. I can't remember. But I'm not going to hold you. Good Morning America was never my hour of the morning, because I take that time out to usually have my ritualistic morning cup of coffee and why do I, why, why, Lord, am I going to this job time? And I can't cut that. I can't cut that out. So, good morning, America. <laughs> Besides the coffee, do you want to share tips for getting people through the why am I going to this job moment? <laughs> Miles, you are a mess. <laughs> <laughs> when I know, I will tell you. But you know, no matter how much you love your job, Eight in the morning is eight in the morning. But yeah, so I, I wasn't really familiar with these bright-eyed Botox faces. But once the mess got to my doorstep, I re- did my research. So if you don't know, TJ Holmes, Amy, how do you pronounce her last name? Robach. Robach, Robach, okay. Child, not me mispronouncing a white woman's name. <laughs> That's bad. Okay, so TJ Holmes, Amy Robach, they were caught with pictures. Pic- people snapped pictures of them canoodling. Um, TJ Holmes, wide legs, laughing with his whole mouth. You could see all of his veneers. Like, I'm over here like, you are in this woman's face. <laughs> Y'all must be working together. So all of that happened. And with his tabloids, it became a big scandal. But I'm included in this. But I thought that it was going to get kind of brushed over. I thought, you know, nobody's going to say anything. Or maybe they'll rebrand as it's actually kind of cute or whatever. And then I know they were both married. And then the affair elapsed over their marriages. And then I thought to myself, well, so... (laughs) So people talk about how the Me Too movement has made things really, really sensitive for people. But I actually would argue the opposite. I actually think because of how much we hear about sexual assault in the just insane inappropriateness and sexual violence that people have experienced in the workplace, I think a little cheat actually feels minimal compared to what we know about. If two consistent adults getting their groove on, it's like, oh, boring. We can't do nothing with that. Well, child, I was wrong. Because ABC said, y'all have to stay where y'all at. Y'all have to stay where y'all at, and y'all cannot come back to work because y'all are causing a distraction. Thought this was really, really interesting. It's even coming out that TJ Holmes was just... I don't want to make light of it because... At the point of this recording, I don't know the tone of each one. It sounded like he was just being a garden tool, and that was it. But then now some of the allegations are coming out, and to me, the tone of them are coercion, or the tone of them are, are sexual assault, and not, like, like consensual. So I never want to make light about those situations. If they were, like, more than people just falling for um, T.J. Holmes' 
you know, big butt and a smile child, apparently. <laughs> I have learned more about this in the last three minutes than in the last week. I'm telling you, I will consume the the BS and make it into compost and give it to y'all. Listen, and that's why we appreciate you. So not just because it's messy and I love hearing really intelligent, important people talk about things that are super frivolous. It's like one of my favorite things to, to do in here. So beyond that point is, do you all think that there is a race moment happening? So meaning if it wasn't so public that he was dating a white woman, do we think that is hap- kind of like influencing this this public lashing that he's going under and then also do you think that like what's what's your opinion on what they were doing because they seem really confident and lawyered up and i don't know if i'm just heavily influenced by people with perfect smiles and who look like they spend all their time eating seaweed and at the gym so i'm like (laughs) they must be telling the truth they're like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, what, who, who acts like this and deceives you? They're going on walk with dogs and all this other stuff. So I'm just super curious. And then, you know, I'm most excited to hear from our lawyer in residence. Because I need to know where's the money at? Who's getting the money? Will they be able to work again? It's Amy Robot. I see a Fox News in her forecast. They all make the pivot. Mm. They all make the pivot. Mm. Last thing I'm going to say with TJ Holmes is if they get rid of this man, if they get rid of this man and then he ends up on Fox News, we have to take responsibility for what we did. We have to we have to do it because that seems to be the trajectory of blacklisted black men is that they go straight conservative. So I want y'all to watch very carefully what he does. It all starts with a little with a little, oh, maybe Trump wasn't so bad. And then all of a sudden you got a little second. But can I can I add one thing before we get our resident legal opinion? So like for me, the racial moment was, oh, we know what's going to happen. They're going to fire him and she is going to stay at Good Morning America because at least from many of the things that I read, it seems like legitimately was in the separating process or separated from her husband. And his wife seemed like she ain't know nothing about this. Or they were reconciled. They, they were separated, but they were reconciled. She thought they were reconciling while he's canoodling with the coworker. But a few days ago, Amy Robach had her people saying that she felt blindsided after she learned about all of TJ's workplace escapades, that she felt like she was just collateral damage in this, that... Um, she really didn't expect this to be a spectacle, but that his exploits made this a spectacle. And she was all, you know, a white woman tears, right? Oh my gosh, here I thought me and this man had something and, you know, I'm just collateral damage is the the phrase. And so I was like, this is a setup, right? She's crying tears. He gonna get fired. They're gonna find a way to keep her. And then we gonna be mad and black all over again. But and so I'm shocked that both of them got the can. Well, Auntie Auntie Kaya, now I'm not saying white women's tears are right, but if it's <laughs> but if there's ever an appropriate time to start crying as a white woman, it's when your black boyfriend with your good paying good oh I know them benefits are crazy. I know those benefits are crazy. Oh I know they just they could just go sneeze and they could just go and get cheap on surgery and, and all that other stuff, just on health insurance. I know it. Child, you worked at that place. You heard about what was going on. And that might be why you was curious to see what all of the hubbub was about. Oh! <laughs> OK. 
okay. Oh, you got me. You got me. You said you said I want to. I want to. I want to know what is going on. Come on, you know. You know what the what the tea is at work. I will say that they they black people called this the moment it happened. They were like, there is no way in the world. I was really surprised at how quickly people called this so long ago. And it seems like TJ didn't get it. Like, that's the thing that got me is like TJ, like when Black people clocked it, I was like, maybe he'll change his public stance. We'll get in the pop. I don't know. But he really was just riding like they were going to treat him like a white man. He went all in, honey. Yes. And it, like, and then it was like, they were like, he's going to sue. And I'm like, oh, he really don't get the game. Ah. Whatever delusion you were under to go have an affair with a white woman at your job, that does not just stop in the bedroom. So whatever delusion you're under has to exist outside of other things. So I'm so not surprised that he didn't get it because if he had one black home, I don't know. I don't, I hate, I hate measuring blackness. But just somebody who just lives just closer to the Flatbush area, the closer to the Bed-Stuy area. And then he told just one homie, not even a good homie, just one homie the story. I feel like a black man would have been like, no, you're going to have to watch out. You're going to have to watch out. I'm like, nobody said watch out. I'll say, I I think love is hard to find. And when you find it, you got to go with it. And if it's just a black man, it's a white woman, then... That's their business, and God bless them. But to ignore the professional implications, the racial implications, like, I, I don't know what y'all thought was going to happen, but this was not going to end well from the beginning. But it's it has ended well because Amy is rich. Rich. Like, rich, rich. Stinky rich, huh? TJ Holmes, Holmes is from West Memphis, Arkansas. Okay. That's where he from. Have you ever heard of West Memphis, Arkansas? (laughs) We out of here. We are out of here. We are going to Wakanda. Um, I feel like they knew the risk and they were just like, you know what? We don't care because we're going to live happily ever after. And we are so happy and so in love. F this show. And they are going to sue over this morality clause. And I think that they have some legal standing. So we'll see. We'll see what comes out of it. But... I mean, they just a couple days ago, they were spotted kissing and hugging and loving on each other. So I don't think they are sweating any of this. They don't got to get up at three o'clock in the morning every day anymore. They just doing what they want to do. So So my last question to you before we move on is because you made the point, but she's very rich, right? I don't know why, just because she's the host or she's like from money. It's like, I think... She's made some good investments over her career, but her estimated net worth is $50 million. Got it, got it. But that don't got nothing to do with TJ Holmes because, like, what, he, he can't trap her. Oh, I guess he could. I don't know. But I'm like, this, <laughs> but I'm like, that, that's still her. He done got that girl out of her job. So, I mean, okay. listen. Well, we'll, we'll keep a just a serious, close eye on this developing story that is shaking my world has me up earlier than usual seeing what's going on and seeing who's hosting what and then going to sleep to Gail on CBS. Oh my god, I forgot TJ Holmes was on BET. Y'all, TJ Holmes is where he wants to be, okay? He been working himself out of out of us for a long time. Well, first, that's not fair. Where where would he go that's black? (laughs) 
Where would he go? Look at our black asses on this podcast. I mean, you know, you still... <laughs> not not him not not him um him and Carice not him and Carisha T J Holmes revolt 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 T J Holmes I think you real cute real bad Carisha uh, please <laughs> yeah don't go anywhere more politics the people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So I just, my news is, it's sort of about my news today, like what I'm going to talk about. But but a little bit broader. So my news is about Robert Townsend. And this article is is really talking about, you know, his career, yada, yada, yada. But in the context of, like, trying to promote this new show that's written by Eric Garcia, it's called Kaleidoscope. I don't know anything about Kaleidoscope. I don't know anything about Eric Garcia. So I'm not talking about any of that. 
Now, Robert Townsend is beloved by me. I love Robert Townsend. I just do. The Five Heartbeats is one of the best films ever made. When them boys got out that car where they pulled over by the police and they had to sing, woo! Now that is some acting. So I just, it was just on my heart because I think I'm, I'm having a lot of feels about Oscar nominations. And I don't want to talk about Oscar nominations and who was snubbed and this and this and that because I'm like, I'm over it. The reality is Black people respect and see ourselves and our talent. And to me, that's kind of all that that matters, right? And so, I don't know, I saw this article about Robert Townsend and his career and how many people he's put on over the years, whether it's, you know, for his first really big break was Hollywood Shuffle, which he produced, directed. And that was the other thing too, like in back in this day, with the weigh-ins and Robert Townsend, it just was like, there seemed to be, and, 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 you know, obviously there's nuance in it because, you know, obviously some of these portrayals are questionable and, 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 and beyond, right? Offensive in some cases. But he also worked with, you know, Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones and Don Cheadle, Mar- Marla Gibbs, John Witherspoon, and so many others. And so in this context, it just... You know, I think about the work that my company does in, in film and doc, and I think about the filmmakers. There's so many brilliant Black filmmakers that we have now who, it, it's interesting because it almost seems like there seem, seems to be less content and less opportunity than in the 80s and the 90s. And then the other thing that was sitting with me is I had the pleasure of taking my parents to see the the last showing of the piano lesson last night. And... It was so, first of all, the play is just outstanding, obviously, right? Um, And Daniel Brooks is incredible. And I was like, Daniel Brooks is just such an incredible, profound talent that had to be on Orange is the New Black. Like, that gets on my nerves. John David Washington, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Potts. And then last year, Trey Byers was actually in it playing Lyman. So Trey Byers is one of the cuties from Empire, the older brother, if you remember him, he was incredible. And so, but before the show started, Glenn Thurman was there. So Glenn Thurman, most of you will know him as um, Colonel Taylor from a different world. Okay. Isn't it Terman? Terman, Terman, Terman. I'm sorry, Terman, Glenn Terman. Thank you, Kaya. Um, But he played Colonel Taylor in a different world, Uh, but he's just had this prolific career. And the audience, which was predominantly Black, stood up and gave him a standing ovation. And I just was like, this is what's meaningful. We see each other. We know what it takes to make it in spaces that aren't for us or built for us or want us. And Glenn Terman, who his first role at 12 was in the original Broadway production of A Raising in the Sun, and he performed with Sidney Portier, Ruby D, and Louis Gossett Jr. <sighs> it blows my mind. It just was so beautiful. He was also preach and cool Pre- guy. This, listen, the young people don't know these. They things. don't know, Kaya. <laughs> they don't know. But it just was like he was preach and cool guy. And he was married to Aretha Franklin. That's right, he was. He, that's what my mama said. You know he was married to Aretha Franklin. I was like, no, mama, I didn't know that. Yes. 
Whew, it's a good thing. It's a good thing I'm on here to bring a little history to the thing. So it just, and so, and then, <laughs> and Debbie Allen was in the crowd. Everybody stood and clapped for Debbie. You know, the show didn't start till 320. It was supposed to start at three o'clock. Denzel Washington was in the building. My mom spent the whole time watching Denzel Washington's reactions to the play. I was like, mama, are you going to watch the play or not? But all this to say, I think it's just been like, just all these thoughts and all these feels and being able to be there last night and then seeing this article on Robert Townsend and just that like the talent is just so magnificent. It just is. And it's so beautiful. And I think what the way I'm framing this and the way, you know, thinking about studios and Hollywood and awards and like, we matter in it and representations that help to shape us matter and how to support that, you know, will continue to be my life's work, but it just, just all of these things running together. I'm just, and I think I just needed so much something to hold on to given Tyree Nichols of it all. And just to be reminded how valued we are by one another so that's my news. It's all over the place, but I just, I, I needed this to hold on to and it really came at the right time. I have such a deep love of, so I've always, and DeRay will always remind me that, I, that he met me as a writer as much as I want to like scrub that away because it's just vibes and selfies right now. But I've been like, the things that I have been writing, the ways I've been able to get out my critique is through um, like playwriting and writing scripts and, and, doing, and, and doing different things like that. And also just consuming things that I, maybe I haven't seen in like years now, right? And it's just interesting that you brought this to the pod because Robert Townsend was one of the people, like Hollywood Shuffle was the first film that I saw that I enjoyed. That and that that felt like like one of my films. Second was Crooklyn. I saw Crooklyn like, like later. I can literally remember the the succession of me seeing these films. And what like like what a genius Robert um, Townsend is. I, I um I think it should be such just imperative. I think if you are going to make films, I don't care if you're going to make Macbeth. I don't care if you're going to make whatever else or something of a lower, I think everybody should see Jennifer Lewis and J- Jackie's back too. Like, I think Bats. that... <laughs> Rob Bats. Like, I think that Robert Townsend is such a genius and, I like, just, one, like, re- literally one of, one of my heroes. Um, and, yeah, I think from from everything that uh, that she said, I think it's super important for us to honor people who are keeping stories alive, keeping and keeping stories going. Um, I get specifically black stories if that wasn't um, obvious. I will say uh, Robert Townsend to me will always be Meteor Man. <laughs> that was my first um, understanding of a black superhero. I had never even like you know, a non-cartoon superhero. Meteor Man was my, he is Meteor Man to me. Everything else is like a derivative <laughs> of Meteor Man. It's like Meteor Man goes and does other movies, but he will always be Meteor Man to me. And I, only as an adult that I appreciate how formative it was to just see a Black superhero in that way uh, when I was much younger. So shout out to Meteor Man. 
Um, thanks for bringing us to the pod, Yara. I thought what the article did for me was remind us of our responsibility, but also just how we do business in bringing the next generation along. Like the number of people who Robert Townsend worked with, not just the actors, some of whom you mentioned, but many of the Black directors. I mean, Robert Townsend did his stuff a long time ago, but many people don't know that he's directing Kaleidoscope. He's directing The Best Man Final Chapters. He's directing, you know, all of these things that we're watching on TV today. And so, one, he still has his handprints all over Black cinema, but also... You know, I don't know who Eric Garcia is too, but Kaleidoscope is the hottest thing going right now. Everybody's talking about it. And to know that people that you admired when you were coming up as a aspiring filmmaker are willing to work with you to help you hone your craft and your first big thing, I think is huge. And that's who we are as people. We are communal people. We are, you know, the pie is not you know, limited me, you know, helping to, you know, light your light doesn't dim my light. And so this was a great example, I think, of Black mentorship and Black access and our commitment to each other as a folk, as a people. And so um, I like that. So my news, I feel like I keep saying this, I'm really shock shocked and then i read something and i'm like lord jesus here we go again so my news is about the neo-nazis who are homeschooling so uh huffington post did an incredible uh, analysis and an investigatory piece by the way i also like realized i hadn't really read a lot of things in huffington post lately i was like okay huffington post with original research so shout out to huffington post for still you know staying strong but there is a Telegram group called Dissident Homeschool that was run by a married couple that named themselves Mr. and Mrs. Saxon, had about 2,500 subscribers, and it was a neo-Nazi homeschool parent group with lesson plans, with worksheets, with history lessons, with talking points, with analyses, with framing around race and white supremacy. What the Huffington Post did is that they backed into who Mr. and Mrs. Saxon were and named them. And they found them. And that's sort of one of the biggest things that comes out of the article that is big. But the other thing is that it just highlights like that there is an organized community of people using homeschooling as a way to inculcate the next generation of neo-Nazis. And I just, in reading it, it made total sense to me. And these people are like deep, deep in it. Like, you know, the um, their dog's name is, it was Hitler's dog's name. They have a podcast where they reinforce the ideas. But again, it was all anonymous up until now. Uh, Logan and Katja Lawrence of Upper Sandusky, Ohio. Since they have been named, they have turned off all comments in the chat group. Uh, Katja has deleted her Facebook. It's unclear if the podcast will continue, but 2,500 parents is not insignificant. That is, that's a lot of people. And, you know, people have talked about homeschooling as a breeding ground for white supremacy, 
But to see this uh, on Telegram as like to see the plan laid out was really something I was floored by. You know, Dre, this is really interesting. Um, Well, I mean, it's like shocking and appalling and all those and abhorrent. But it reminds me of this article I actually read over the weekend about DeSantis appointing really conservative trustee members to the, the public universities across Florida. So it's just like... I think this is something that's very calculated and on purpose and gonna, and they're just so smart about being villains. It's, it's like wild. They're so good at it. But I think this is something that is obviously gonna, it, it is happening within homeschooling, but I think it's, it's happening writ large within public institutions where there are conservatives in power that are allowed to appoint these, um, appoint these people. A dear friend of mine is also on a, a, a board of an Ivy League um, that I will name, but she also find it fascinating because a, a board member there is it, showing some signs of this conservatism too. So it's just like, I think it's also going to be something that happens in some of the, the liberal arts, private funded colleges as well. So this is, this is wild. It's, and it's just like worried about the wrong things. The first thing that my mind went to was like all this hoopla about the critical race in the theory. And this is where this is what's happening in in um in people's homeschooling. Like, if we could just focus on people who like what's uh, I don't even know. If I'm shocked, I'll, I'll be lying. If I was saying shocked about like shocked about anything, but what still I just find like just insanely disgusting is that Nazism is gross and it's like as well as hateful and all that other stuff. But it's 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 gross and it's it's like cultural. You know, like I like I don't, I don't know another way. I don't know another way of saying it. It really more than the the racist people that I that I grew up with in suburban in rural Georgia. There wasn't necessarily a culture around who you hated. It's not. It might have been a result and just something that I, I don't like black people because it's how I grew up and it was kind of as a byproduct and those byproducts can create violence in horrible situations, but it, it feels just particularly scary that there's an act to create, like, a culture around who you hate, who you think doesn't deserve to be here, and the fact that now there's being organized efforts to infiltrate spaces or to take people who are already in those spaces and just lean them further to what you think in order to gain control, in order to harm, harm others. And, you know, I know that we're all, like, triggered about like guns and where we've been like talking about this for like the last couple like couple of weeks now but also it scares me because i'm like they can't not be planning something violent right like that can't be like not like nazis did the genocide you can't not be here teaching kids this stuff if the end game is not to one day be able to do something violent and this is the beginning of training a mind to be able to do something violent because nazis weren't just nazis because of what they believed, they were Nazis because they acted out what they believed, and they helped kill people. And to me, this is where America's focus should be, and what people who are interested in education should be, not on, you know, critical race theory. And I think that was Auntie Kai's news last week around um, what people are like, what's racist and what's not being taught, and, and, and things being seen as racist and stuff like that. Yeah, that's the end of my anti-Nazi rancho. So first of all, I want people to understand that like this is not just 
quote unquote parental rights to teach whatever they want. Like one, the, the article says one lesson plan about Martin Luther King Jr. tells parents to teach their kids that the revered civil rights leader was a degenerate anti-white criminal whose life's work was to make it impossible for white communities to protect their own way of life and keep their people safe from black crime. Like this is not like we just want to teach God or blah, blah, whatever, whatever. This is deeply, deeply racist. Um, and this is not like a new, this is not new. This is not fringe. This is not discreet. Like this is the, this is the continuation of what happened post Brown Board of Education, where white people did not want their kids to go to school with black people. And so they pulled them out, they homeschooled them, they started their own academies. It is where you see now a lot of the voucher movement coming from, pulling public um, money for education to making it available to individuals so that they can send their kids to the schools that they want to send them to, not necessarily public schools. Um, where there is very little regulation in homeschooling. In fact, um, across education policy, you've seen more and more deregulation of homeschooling so that people can teach whatever they want to teach and use public funds to do that. And when you look at all of these school board races and, and folks packing, I mean, the two major, I read this a while ago, and I'll try to find an article. I know I posted it on Twitter a while ago. The two largest political contributors in the state of Texas are these two men who are fighting to completely and totally dismantle public education, to voucherize everything so that these kinds of homeschoolers can do what they do writ large across the world. Like these book bans, the critical race theory stuff, the public university stuff, like this is a full frontal assault on American public education. And it is a full frontal assault on diversity. It's a full frontal assault on democracy. Like this is a preservation of white power and white culture in ways that like, we're going to wake up 15 years from now and be like, oh my gosh, how did it happen? It happened because they were training these folks in these homeschooling academies where they're teaching all of this stuff. And then come right to my news where now instead of an AR-15, you can get a JR-15, a youth training rifle, which looks, feels, and operates like mom and dad's gun, an assault rifle that is marketed to children. Like, this is what it is, friends. Like, it's not, it's not random. It's not fringe. This is a full assault on democracy in America. I thought that was a good transition. Mm. So my, my news for you, yeah, yeah. there are um, some gun manufacturers, Schmidt Tool and WE1 Tactical, um, that they specialize in the AR-15 assault style rifle. And the AR-15s are what? Most of our mass mass shooting suspects like to use. They are really military grade weapons that, for the last ten or fifteen years, the gun manufacturers have been heavily marketing to eighteen to thirty five year old men. Um, they have now come out with a JR fifteen, which is a child sized rifle. It's designed to appeal directly to kids. It is a scaled down version of the AR fifteen. 20% reduction in size, 2.2 pounds, and the people say it, quote unquote, fits kids really well. Um, the way they are marketing this gun is um, there are cartoon skulls showing a boy in a mohawk and a girl in ponytails, all in hopes of cultivating the next generation of American gun owners. Kids are not physically or psychologically equipped to be, you know, shooting assault weapons. 
but the gun manufacturers are making it as if it's an American hobby that kids should be able to shoot with their parents at a time where, in fact, hunting as a hobby is on the decline. That's how most young people have their first experience with guns because their family hunts. But in fact, hunting is on a decline and marketing with these gun manufacturers has gone bananas over the last 15 or 20 years when, you know, at first when the JR-15 came out, big splashy website, all of this stuff, and Democratic, a group of Democratic senators looked up and were like, wait, what in the world? And these senators have asked the FTC to launch an investigation into the company's marketing practices because, like, why are we marketing guns to little kids? But that's what this is all about. They call it. And then the companies have taken down the JR-15 website. They've rebranded the marketing campaign, they say, based on feedback from their customers. And now they're calling it a training rifle. And so encouraging families to take their kids to the range and train them on how to responsibly shoot assault rifles. Oh my gosh. Anyway, all of this against the backdrop of the fact that gun violence is the leading cause of death for young people and teenagers in the United States. More young people die from gun violence than from car accidents. And we just watched a six-year-old shoot his teacher. So I'm not really sure who we are as a country. I actually am sure who we are as a country. Arnie Duncan, a former secretary of education, once said, we love our guns more than we love our children in the United States. And when we're okay with gun manufacturers marketing a JR-15, a junior AR-15, I think he might be right. I, I literally hadn't heard about this at all in any capacity on any show, hadn't heard about it on Twitter at all until you brought this up. I will just say I Googled JR-15. First thing I saw was a, a site that was called We One, like playing on like we as in little kids. Um, and it is a little kid with a assault rifle. And it's like, that is mind blowing. I mean, what a world we live in. I didn't, I don't know. I don't know what I thought. I knew kids might be using guns. I had no clue that we literally are making a junior assault rifle. That is just wild. You know, and I and I it's it's funny that I even mentioned it today because I feel like I don't mention where I grew up because I for don't talk about it. But I actually have more empathy than maybe not empathy. I have, like, more understanding because growing up in rural suburban Georgia of, like, the culture around hunting, specifically even because all the people who I grew up, who I saw hunt and use guns were Black people. And that was, like, a thing that they would do with their kids and stuff like that. And I went hunting with my stepfather a few times, too. So I... It's not surprising. I think that there is such a intense culture around being able to provide for oneself and being able to show that you're not losing any of your capacity as like a a, a, a real human or a real man or a real country person and you can go and, 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 and hunt and do this and you're not like the city folk and stuff like that. And I like stand 10 toes down that I understand it, but it doesn't work because People who have mood disorders, people who are being indoctrinated to do violent things because of people's races, um, t- uh, teenagers are having access to this gun and killing people. 
and killing people. And it's just like this weird denial that it's that it's happening and this kind of like kid washing of what these rifles are gonna gonna do and trying to make it seem like, oh, this is just about hunting. Yeah, probably for most people who get those guns for their kids, that's all it'll be be about. But it takes just one time for there to be a tragedy. It takes two times for it to be a tragedy. You don't need an assault rifle to kill a deer or a moose or a rabbit or whatever it is you shoot. And when you look at these websites, there's no black people in these videos advertising. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not, I was I was never even insinuating that it was big. It wasn't. I was never even insinuating marketing towards them. But I think that because I grew up seeing black people engage in that, like engage in hunting, and because those black people were doing it not just with other black people, with white people too. Yeah, you can you can get with gun ownership. This is this is not about not, no gun ownership. This is about assault rifles of the caliber that our people in the military are using to take out our national enemies like that we're now we now think it's okay to give to children whose full frontal cortex is not fully developed, who, you know, can't manage their emotions the way adults can. Uh, I mean, and the real concerted effort that this, I mean, a lot of this plays on race war, the potential of a race war and the loss of white power and the loss of white manhood. And like owning a gun is different than like this thing. We totally agree with each other. No, it's insanely wrong. I guess in my head, and not that that is even our listenership, in my head I'm like appealing to people who I'm like, oh, I get why you it. I wouldn't do it, but I understand the culture of maybe somebody else who maybe grew up in like a more like a liberal place or a place where there's no gun ownership being like, what? That's ridiculous. Why would you ever buy your kid any gun? You know, where it's like, oh, I get it, but I get why somebody will buy them their kid a gun. Why not protect your right to have a gun or why not protect, like, hunting if you think it's so sacred? Why not, like, actually be reasonable, I guess is what I'm thinking. Like, why not say, not not this gun, you know, instead of just rallying for everything? Because, like you're saying, these are things, these are military-grade weapons. So, like, yeah, I guess I don't know. I guess I just, uh, long story short, I met a lot of people who were seemingly reasonable seemingly not racist who had gun ownership and i'm like why is that why is there not people amongst the, that community who are saying you know what we do guns hunting's a part of our heritage hunting's a part of our hobbies and we don't think we need these guns either because i know that it's not just these kind of like hicks who just do a thing who mm-hmm. you know like it's not like that community is not just made out of the french people who do who do those violent things but so why not stand up for it and be like no this is ridiculous I guess is what I was trying to say in a more sloppy way. And I, I think it also just goes, part of that, Miles, I feel like is now we've had so many decades of gun culture, right? It's like, they're, they're, they're like Vegas-style conventions around, you know, guns and different new kinds of guns. And here's the newest thing. It's almost like culture con, but for guns, you know what I mean? So I think part of it is just like, they are coming out with the most ridiculous versions of things. I'm sure things that we have no context of, of no visibility into, because that's not our vibe. But I can only imagine what it's like going to those shows, like in the wildness 
that they that they come up with and that people buy, right? And 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 what's running alongside that culture is you know, conservatism and, and radicalism and, and Nazi, like it, all of these things are like all so intertwined. And I think that's, that's the scary part, right? I think it, it is, it is that, I mean, to DeRay's point, he hadn't seen this, hadn't never heard of this ever. So just imagine how many things like this that again, we haven't even heard of. The fact that they think it's okay to have videos, have YouTubes of little six-year-old kids shooting assault rifles is just beyond. It's beyond. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. And this week, we welcome Ben on the pod to talk about his new podcast called American Terror. Now, we talked about Nazism and police terrorism all throughout today's news segment, but this combo helps us to zoom in even further. Vice Journalist exposes domestic terror groups and far-right extremists in the United States, breaking down what the public needs to know about them and how they might be stopped. Here we go. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate being here. So let's start with how did you become a journalist? And you've written about, you know, I was going through, you, you've written a lot, and you've written about like foreign affairs. We're going to talk about the podcast. Like, how did you get into this sort of like, I don't know, not niche, not genre, I don't know, like this focus area of your writing? What was that story? Well, I, honestly, I think it kind of starts back in when I started becoming a journalist. I, I had a, a brother who served in the military and was deployed to Afghanistan, and I kind of became very into the war on terror to understand what was happening. I mean, it was sort of this, it was like our our era's 
Vietnam War, and I really became sort of obsessed with it in some ways. But when I became a journalist and I got into an internship, I sort of focused on it, and I slowly kind of accrued these sources within the military because of my brother and because of some of those connections. And I got a position with what is Associated Press in Canada. And as a junior person, I was quite tired of sort of reporting on politics, which is what my beat was. And I started to look at sort of what was happening in the world and saw that an organization called ISIS was fomenting itself. And a lot of it was sort of attracted, attracting these very young, angry men from all over the world. And I slowly sort of became embedded in many of their online networks. I did a bunch of reporting on that, which got a lot of attention in Canada and the United States. It ran me up against the uh, Canadian FBI, the RCMP, for some source materials. But while that was happening sometime in 2015 and 2016, I certainly noticed that there was sort of the same thing happening, except it was on the far right, and it was largely attracting very angry young white men. And the things that were exchanging the ideologies, the philosophies, the books, the figures, it very much sort of paralleled what, how the rise of ISIS had, and Al-Qaeda had, had sort of found itself online. And from there, I, I, I began to report on it, and it slowly kind of got worse and worse and worse is the best way I could describe it, until I think really culminating into the reporting that I did on this group called The Base which was sort of this predecessor, I think, to, to some of the violence we, we eventually saw and which we're still seeing. Well, let's talk about the podcast. Now, now what made you do a podcast? So you've been a writer for so long. You've written, you know, all styles, a long form, short form. Like, what, why a podcast? Well, what happened was one of the sources that I was in contact with in the base, which is this neo-Nazi accelerationist terrorist group, which its founding ideology is to take down the U.S. government in order to build a white ethno state from its ashes by terrorist attacks. Now, this group was very uh, insular, very very secretive, and they had they had these sort of recruitment calls where the leader of the group would get on a conference call and speak to a potential recruit. Now, I had a source who infiltrated the organization at a pretty high level and started to record these calls. So when we were thinking about it, about how we would tell the story, having these calls as, a, as just pure audio, which is what they were, it was sort of a perfect you know, way to tell it, is to tell it in podcast form, that you could hear these voices. And it really is sort of this, I mean, it hasn't worn off on me, these sort of chilling interviews where you know, it's an interview to be a white supremacist terrorist essentially. Uh, and even into that, it's mixed in with getting a really all-access look at why these people think the way they do and, and also how they organize themselves and, and how, how, they, how they also spread and recruit. So it was a, it was a perfect way to, to tell this particular story because we had 90, I think it was like 80 or 90 hours of, of phone calls. That's awesome. Let's, uh, I want to know what you learned and help us demystify some of the things about, uh, about the way the neo-Nazis are organizing, but I have some questions from my listening. So one of the things that I thought was like so interesting, I think it's in the, um, ooh, maybe it's in the farm episode. I like the episodes are running together because, you know, the neo-Nazis are racist in all of them. And I was like, well, this is, wow. Um, but one of the things that, that you, that like is a sort of small moment in one of them, but it was like a big, it was a big note, was the relationship between neo-Nazis and misogyny. Like you, you sort of highlight that they are very explicit about controlling women and 
having babies with women, like under false pretenses just to birth white kids. Can you talk more about like, did you go into it thinking it was going to be that explicit or like, did you stumble across upon that in one of the calls? Like, how did you, I was, I was interested in that because that is what I thought, but like, I didn't know it would come out so clearly. Well, I would say for the reporters that I worked with on this as well, we all kind of very early on thought that this was a major feature. I don't think we understood just how major a feature it was in that you look at something like the 14 words, which is, you know, a neo-Nazi credo, which, in, which essentially dictates securing a future for white children. Now that obviously implies a lot, right? That implies you need to have white kids. You have to have a white wife or a white partner. That is sort of the core ideology of Nazism. This goes way back to Hitler, you know? So misogyny really is a central component of these ideologies. And I would say it's also, I mean, not, not just Nazism, but I think also anything far right, it has sort of this subjugation of women attached to it. I mean, we even see it right now with, you know, the present day GOP and it's rolling back of abortion rights. There is always something that has to do with controlling women. And also, I should say, controlling people of color and Jewish people. This is something that's a central component to all these, these groups. But the other thing that I found was sort of a startling, not so much revelation, as much as I, I just made the connection, was that you know, this, these groups and extremist you know, organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, they, they have a lot of that in common. You know, it's about the subjugation of women. And I, you know, I've spoken to, I, I spoke to one Al-Qaeda operative uh, a few years ago, and he told me that that was a central thing. Like they, they were, it was about controlling women and getting married to women and, and procreating and, and, and spreading this, these types of uh, systems forward. And you look at, you look at what these neo-Nazi organizations are like, and they were doing the exact same thing, or they, they, they profess to want to do these exact same things. Now, because you infiltrated a group that had, taking a lot of measures to go unnoticed and off the radar. I'm like, so I was listening and I'm like, do their families not know this is happening? Are they just turning a blind eye? Like it just, some of the calls are just so wild. I'm like, this has to spill over. Or like the guy who's like, you know, um, there's like the one part where he's like, he says he's in the national guard. It's like, I'm like, does nobody know? I'm like, what's your read on that? Honestly, it's it's a mixed bag. I would say there was certainly one individual who was the leader of the Georgia cell. It, it was pretty clear that his family had some sort of idea of what was going on. I, I, and I know that there were others where I think their families did know and denounced it. Uh, that said, I actually do believe that many of these families had no idea. And I can tell you the amount of times that I, I, I've we've we confronted family members with information like this before, and their families will say we had no idea. Now, whether or not that's true, I, I can't say for sure. I will say that these these types of people that were in these groups, some of them were, were pretty professional. Some of them were really trying to hide what they believed, and others weren't. So, I would say that I think one of the more frightening things is that, you know, I do think that some of these kids that were, and I do say kids, because some of them were 17, 18, 19 that joined. I think some of them picked it up on their own. It wasn't their parents. They're just these kids that kind of believe they're disaffected white kids from the suburbs who have some, you know, uh, some interest in history and politics and philosophy. And they latch onto this really toxic politics. And 
next thing you know, you know, they're, they're, they're reading Mein Kampf, they're reading the Turner Diaries, they're reading Siege, which is another really, you know, horrific uh, neo-Nazi handbook on terrorism. So it, I would say it's a, it really is a mixed bag. And the more frightening cases were the ones who really were able to hide it. And why were, you know, there's a whole episode on why better is like a whole moment and, and so strewn throughout because I first came across you talking about uh, the guy in the National Guard was not in episode six. It was in like one of the early episodes. But why Why do you think the former military people are easy targets for this? Like, and I ask and not like, obviously I can think about some reasons why, but the military has people of all races and, you know, like it is. Like, there's an argument to be made that, like, you might you might actually be exposed to more culture in the military if you came from some random, you know, place that was only white. The military is not necessarily like that. So I guess I underappreciated that they would be targeted for Nazi groups when they come home. Yeah, well, it, here's the thing. I think, and experts would agree, the majority experience of people in the military is it is this, like, it is a, it's probably one of the most effective melting pots of American society. But at the same time, we also know, and, and, and I would urge people to read a book by historian uh, Kathleen Ballou called Bring the War Home, where she details how essentially since starting from the, the Civil War, mark every single major war, there's been a massive influx of both extremist organizations and their creation and extremist acts of violence. Now, this obviously starts with the Klan, and many of the, 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 the original Klan members were Confederate soldiers. I mean, you look at someone like Nathan Bedford Forrest, he was a Confederate cavalryman who was actually called the Wizard of the Saddle, which is why he created the first Grand Wizard. So you see just sort of that, that real connection to post-war trauma, post-war organization, and the, the fomentation of extremist groups. And I think part of it is that it's, these sorts of wars are, are violent experiences for all of society, and they also reinforce there are opportunities for Black veterans to come back, Jewish veterans to come back and assert their newly found powers, right? And that was part of what gave rise to the Klan in, in, in the 1920s after World War I. You had many Black veterans who came back and they were not, you know, they were not taking some of the, the Jim Crow laws that were in place and they were defying them. So this is something that's continually happened across all of American, all of modern American history. The Vietnam War was another very, very, I think, traumatic moment for Americans, but it also gave rise to tons of extremism. Some of these more militant neo-Nazi groups came out of that war. I mean, you can't, you don't have to look very far back in history to look at someone like Timothy McVeigh. This guy was in the military, decorated, and then he bombed the Oklahoma City uh, Alfred P. Murrah buildings and killed, I think, 160 60 plus people. And this guy was a deep, deep racist who was involved with the militant neo-Nazi community. So it's both people who come back and they're upset and, you know, they don't know where to look and they looked at to these sorts of groups. It's also the same reason why it was pointed out to me during our, our work on this that credit card companies target veterans because they're more likely to bring more people into whatever they're, whatever they're doing, whatever they're consuming, whatever they're buying because of the brotherhood and the community that's involved in being a veteran. So when one gets into an extremist group, it tends to drag others in. And also they have this sort of, uh, this prestige in society that, you know, you're a veteran. So if you're an extremist group and you see that some guy in the Marines is there, you're, you're more likely as you think this is the real deal. Maybe we are going to 
start a revolution. Maybe we are going to overthrow and storm the Capitol, which is what we saw. You know, there's many veterans who were, who were key in, in what happened on January 6th. Now, can you help us think through, you know, when I think people hear about terrorism, when they think about Nazis, there are like a few images of what they do that are, you know, it's like some people think about January 6th, people think about the civil rights protests and like blocking schools. I do think the images are very, like it's, I don't think that we have a conception of the everyday violence of Nazis, like neo-Nazis in this moment. How would you describe like what they, what they were doing when you were listening in? Like, what were they planning? Like, was it to blow up a building? Was it something else? What was the, what was the there there in terms of the actions? So this group in particular was much more, the way they saw themselves was almost like an insurgency. And it was, you know, I should point out, it was led by a man named Ronaldo Nazaro, who was a Pentagon contractor that worked with the special forces on targeting missions that was compiling lists of people in groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda and in the Taliban to kill by drone strike or by, by special forces uh, capture kill missions. So this was a person who had a real understanding of how to create a terrorist organization because he had, you know, in part been, been hunting these types of people for years. And what they kind of, slowly began to commit to was sort of these really more intense acts of violence. Like there was an assassination plot of two or one anti-fascist activist in Georgia. There was a plot to shoot up a gun rights rally in Richmond, Virginia, with the hopes that the gun owners that were at the rally would turn their guns on the police and they could kick off a race war in this way. There was defacements of uh, of, uh, Jewish communities But I think one of the interesting things about this particular group, the base, is that the FBI did make it a top priority to infiltrate them and take them down. And they put a lot of focus on it. And they had actually, through some undercover, were able to get into the group and stop some of these actions. But the things that they were doing and plotting and thinking about were much more paramilitary than, let's say, the January 6th mob attack. That said... This same group, probably I think it was in 2019 or 2020, literally discussed storming the Capitol during the confirmation of the election results. This is something that you know they were even thinking about. So these groups were much more sort of, I would say, think about you know classic terrorist organizations. They shared bomb making manuals and things like this. So they weren't like sort of the, the, the street walking skinheads who tried to beat people up or even tried to do a lone wolf mass shooting because to them one one person doing that wouldn't really affect their political goals. And they really did see their goals and they do see their goals as political. There's definitely a consensus among anybody that listens to this podcast that neo-Nazis are bad. Nazis are bad. All, like, just not good. What do we learn from studying them in this moment? You know, because I'll say, I don't know if I've, like, been around the Nazi. I mean, like, I mean, this is, I guess, the whole point of the Jewish podcast. I probably had and didn't know it. This is, I guess, <laughs> but here we are. We listen to your podcast and we learn about the inside, the inner workings, the recruitment, the like strategy that they have that is like rooted in bigotry and misogyny and white supremacy. What do we do with that? Well, I think one of the things for me that was maybe one of the most terrifying parts of the reporting was that, you know, I was really watching the exchange of their, and we, you know, we devote, we devote an entire episode to it where we talk about how they have a book club and Part of the thing was they really wanted to sort of uh, germinate American society and the American right with some of their ideas to 
with with hopes of them of that then you know disseminating into the broader public and the broader public becoming more and more violent, which is sort of a condition for their overtaking of the of the U.S. government. Now, I saw them exchanging stuff in 2018 on the Great Replacement Theory, on much more what were at the time clearly neo-Nazi ideas. Now, fast forward to 2022 to 2021, Tucker Carlson has taken this idea and latched onto it. It's it's found its way onto it's found its way. To, I, I'm assuming some of the writers in his in his staff. I, you know, I don't know for sure, but it's pretty terrifying that these extremely neo-Nazi ideas that really do call for violence against people of color, against Jewish people, against anyone that they deem to be uh, sub them. And it's something that I really wanted to make sure that people saw. Look, understand that this is something, these aren't just, the idea of great replacement theory isn't just something that's, you know, let's have a conversation about immigration. It's like, no, this is having a conversation about white purity in society. You just don't realize that's what's happening. And we really need to be aware of that. We really need to be be able to call out some of the symbols they have so they can't hide in plain sight. Something like a Sonnenrad. It's a very, very, it's, it's sort of this weird, creepy looking black sun thing. A lot of people used to wear those to gyms because they, it was a way of, of having a fellow like, oh, you see my Sonnenrad? Maybe you'll come talk to me. Maybe we can organize together. This is something that was really true that they did. Now, now it's starting to be that you can't wear that to gyms because people are starting to understand that that's out there. So for me, it was about the awareness of it. And also, I think, to show Americans and people around the world that, you know, this is something that I think a lot of countries have been grappling with for a long time that didn't just start when Donald Trump came into power. It didn't just start after the recession and we saw a rise of populism. This has been around for a while. We just kind of refused to address this very obvious, deep-seated white supremacy that's violent in our societies. One of the things I thought was so interesting about your podcast is that you have that actual recording. I don't know what I thought when I when I first listened. I was like, I know it says recordings, but I was like, is there? And I was like, oh my goodness, this is like, this is nuts. They know the podcast is out. Do you think they're worried about being uncovered? Like, obviously, these people were hiding. I mean, they weren't like this wasn't on YouTube. You like actually had to have a source to get this. Um, but people know the basics exist now. Like, do you, are they worried about being uncovered? Are they, because a part of me is like, they want the press from being uncovered, you know, like, mm-hmm. or is it a mixed bag? Like, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I think this has certainly made them more and more nervous. I, I Like, if they aren't, they probably should be because, you know, I, I think it was like way over a dozen members have been picked up in FBI counterterrorism probes. So they, they are a target of the FBI, which I think, you know, when it comes to these types of groups, that's probably the last group of people you want coming after you. So I think I'm assuming that there is some amount of, and this is something that national security and terrorism reporters have a tough time weighing, is that when you're reporting on extremists, you kind of have to talk about them. So then you're kind of giving some amount of, of validation to their existence. And I think, you know, I, I have tons of reporters I, I speak with and I think one of the things you have to weigh sort of the public interest in this and whether or not they are are danger to us. And I think with the, the base, it was pretty obvious. And I think now, I think if you if you were, which they do do, they used to poster a lot in certain communities. I think now the fact that we've done the podcast, we've done so much reporting on it, I think people will be aware and see. And I have, you know, I've been tagged in pictures where they're saying like, look, the base is here in this, in this community or, you know, recently... Uh, 
one individual was picked up in Italy and part of it was somebody noticed the the postering and and wrote about it. I, I think it's it is important work to call this out and I I um yeah, I mean <laughs> to answer your question, I think if they're not worried they probably should be. One question I ask you that I before we ask the last two questions. And the question is what did you uncover or like come across in this that like legitimately surprised you that you were like and I asked you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to ask because you had so much footage that I feel like it all, there's a lot of these conversations that I was like, wow, this is just like gloves off wild. But like, was there any part of it? And you've had a long career reporting on all types of terror stuff. So like, you know, maybe this, none of this was surprising, but was there anything? I think for me, one of the most surprising things was, I, and I remember the morning, I had been looking at this group very closely and one of my reporting partners and I had, done the very first story on them because we'd had a source looking at them and we were like, this is bad. And there's some part of you, I think, as a reporter where you're like, I really hope I'm like, I think this, I think I'm right here. And I remember it was, I think it was January, mid-January 2020. And the FBI had done this huge operation taking out, you know, multiple cells of, of the base across the US. And, you know, it was a New York Times alert. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, this really was true. And I think part of it is that I think people don't realize how easy it is to start to get together with a group of people that you mutually hate something or something and have an ideology and really start to create something that's possibly very dangerous and how easily you can hide from it and hide from authorities. So I think to me, it was sort of like a very much a visceral interaction with that. And, you know, I I saw something grow and it got worse and worse. And then I think, one other thing I thought to myself was, I'm glad this group was stopped right before the election in 2020. I mean, how much worse can it get? And, you know, it obviously did. And that for me, I think was, it was like, I didn't want to be right, but I was. And, and that was sort of a, a shocking experience, I think is the way I'd put it. And the two questions uh, that we asked everybody, the first is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten that stuck with you? Oh, man. As a journalist, I remember my mentor told me, because I was, I was complaining about, you know, it was too many hours, too much work. And this man said to me, and he was a great, really great investigative reporter, he said, journalism is not a great job for being paid by the hour. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's true. Because if you want to get the story and you want to commit to something that's going to affect change, you really just have to do what, you, do what it takes. And that's something I've definitely, I, sort of the intensity of reporting and really making sure you stick to something and know everything about it and really go for it. Um, that's something that that has really driven the way that I, I go after stories and I investigate something. Cool. And the last question is, what do you say to people who feel like they've done all the things and it hasn't changed, right? They listen to your podcast, listen to mine, they protested, they emailed, they called the senator, they voted, they like, and it's still bad. What do you say to those people? This is something that I grapple with, you know, because I think it's it's really difficult because there's a lot of really really like awful things that have happened in the last few years. And I've certainly felt it. And there's a real hopelessness at times where, you know, you're reporting on something and you think I'm making a difference, I'm making a difference. And then something else worse comes along or something else comes along. And for me, it's just, I think it's as simple as, you know, you just have to keep doing it because if you don't, then the bad guys are going to win. It's just as simple as that. I mean, I don't want to stop confronting and trying to expose Nazism and extremism, because I don't really want to live in a world where you have the normalization of the 14 words. Because one of my, my, uh, my grandfather was a, a, a Polish soldier who was also interned by the Nazis. 
And, you know, I think one of the things he always said to me was just how quickly this all can happen. And you don't realize how quickly it can happen. And if you don't fight back, it happens. So, you know, that's something I think of. Uh, you just, you have to keep trying. <laughs> you have to. Uh, you've got to find whatever's, whatever's left in your tank and, and keep going. Boom. Well, can you shout out the name of the podcast? And can you also let people know where they can find you so they can stay in touch with your writing? Yes, please. Thank you so much. Uh, American Terror is on Spotify and it's a Gimlet Media production with Vice News. And all eight episodes are out right now. So please go and binge listen to them or take your time because it is <laughs> not the happiest of listens, but it is interesting. And I think there's a lot there that is important. And the entire team that I worked with uh, are, were incredible. And I don't want to take just credit for for myself because I work with such a massive team that are wonderful at Vice Audio. And I'd like to shout them out. And where can people go to stay in touch with what you're writing? Is it next projects? Is it Twitter? Is it Facebook? Is it their website? Check me out on Twitter at bmaku, B-M-A-K-U-C-H. I'm on there. You can see my latest writing. You have my links there. And I'm also on vicenews.com where you can see all the latest things that I've been writing about. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thanks so much, Ray. I really appreciate being here. It's a lot of fun. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. <laughs>